Going from nothing to 12 to 15 million in five years, I didn't learn a lot doing that because everything I did worked, and my partner and I pretty much thought we could never fail. The going bankrupt part, I learned a lot. Michael Sinoff with Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. You know, everyone dreams of getting their product into Walmart, and you're going to hear the next two hours of an interview with someone who has done this and sold over $45 million worth of products to Walmart, Target, and other merchandisers. His name is Joe. I call him Big Joe because Joe's done big numbers and is probably one of the most experienced people I've met on the subject in the inner workings of mass merchandisers. In the next two hours, you're going to hear his story from failure to triumph and how he finally succeeded in nailing his product into some of the world's largest retailers. 25 years ago, Joe learned the inside workings of one of the world's largest consumer products company as a product manager for Kimberly Clark. Kimberly Clark is a manufacturer of Kleenex, Huggies diapers, and other familiar U.S. products. After leaving Kimberly Clark, Joe founded his very first company to manufacture and sell children's products to retailers. Over the last 25 years, Joe has founded and grown four companies. Two of them sold over $45 million worth of products that he had invented and sold to chains like Walmart, Target, and other retailers. Joe developed and sold three complete product lines consisting of hundreds of products to both Walmart and Target, and one year received the Best New Vendor Award from Target's Stationery and School Supply Department. Joe also built and sold a mail-order catalog company and a promotional products company. Joe also has extensive experience in other distribution channels besides retail. You're about to hear the most complete training on the subject of getting your product into Walmart and other mass merchandisers that ever exist. Get ready and let's get going. I got started as an entrepreneur 27 years ago. I went to business school. I got a job with B.F. Goodrich Chemical Company, and I didn't have any training in chemistry, but a friend of mine had the job, and he got transferred to another department. So we spent a weekend, him coaching me on polymer chemistry, and then when they interviewed me on his recommendation, I was the only one they'd ever interviewed who knew their chemistry. How old were you? About 23. Were you a good student all through high school? I did great in high school. I came close to flunking out of college, graduated last in my class, and then got an MBA and was second in my class, 37 A's and a B. You were smart. If it interests you, you could do it. Yeah, that's sort of how it worked out. And then at the BF Goodrich Company, I got assigned a product line as a product manager. I didn't know what business was or marketing. My background had been biology, and I was an artist. And I learned quickly you can't make any money as an artist, especially when you're not very good, which is my case. Did you try and make money as an artist? Yeah, for about a year. Worked in commercial art for a while and found out that this is going to get me nowhere because I'm not very good. So what I did then, I got this job, and now that I've got a job, I'm in charge of marketing for a group of polymers. And I don't know what marketing is. I've never had a business class. So I said, well, the company will pay for business school for me. So I think I better go to school and find out what I'm supposed to be doing in this job. That's when I get into the MBA program at Case in Cleveland. But the funny thing was the product line I got had been around for 25 years and had about the same sales level. What do these chemicals do? They're polyacrylic chemicals. 
their main application was for water treatment and cooling towers to disperse solids so that things don't clog up. Did you have a sales force under you? Yes. I had a sales force, but I wasn't the only polymer they sold. They sold other stuff of our company as well. So not knowing anything about it, I figured what I'd do is go out and talk to customers and ask them what they buy this stuff for. Why are you buying this stuff from us anyway? What is it doing for you? As I'm in business school and doing this, I'm going out and saying, okay, I'm not a chemist. I'm not an engineer. I was the first non-engineer to get this job. Everybody else is chemical engineers. So I went out and talked to customers and found out, what do they use it for? Because these are big companies that have lots of scientists. And I said, what do you think we could do to make it work better? They told me basically make the molecules smaller so they disperse more effectively per pound of polymer. I said, okay, that sounds cool. So I go back to the lab. Did you hear that from multiple people? From customers, yes. Were you going meeting them physically one-on-one or using the phone or what? One-on-one. I get the assignment to market and sell the stuff, and I don't know what it does, so I better figure out what it does and why people buy it. And then I figure, well, nobody better than my customer is going to know how maybe could do it better. So I ask them that, and then I get back to the labs at B.F. Goodrich, and at B.F. Goodrich I didn't have a budget for research labs, but I went out and talked to the scientists out there and got some of them to do stuff on their own time to make me smaller molecules, and they made me some smaller molecules and made me some samples that I took out to my customers, and they tested them in their lab, and they worked better. So I go back up to the lab and said, okay, well now we need the next group of guys who commercialize a product. It's a different department than the ones who create a new molecule. They have to make it efficient in production. So I got them to do that and then took it back out for more tests. And the stuff works great. They start buying a lot of it. And it ends up they're buying tanker trucks full of the stuff we're selling for a buck and a half a pound with a buck profit, which in that company they were selling PVC and rubber and latex and things that have a 1% profit or they're losing money. And this thing is making hellacious profits. After I got my MBA, I left, but we had gone from 25 years at a half a million up to three million in sales. And once I understood it was a dispersant and what it did, I said, well, hell, Procter & Gamble uses dispersants and detergents. I'll go talk to them. And the product we had would not work in a washing machine, but it would work for dry the clothes on a line. And P&G Mexico, that's the detergent they do down there because a lot of people in Mexico dry clothes on a line started buying it for detergents. And now that application could multiply the volume by 10, I suppose, but I ended up leaving before it got commercialized, so I really don't know what happened. What would you say the lesson was in that success? You go talk to your customers, find out what their needs are, what your product needs to do, and ask them if they know how to make it work better. I wasn't the scientist. The problem other people had in the jobs is they were engineers and they thought they knew everything, and they were supposed to be the experts, and they got nowhere. The same product sold the same volume for a couple decades. What I did different is talk to the customers. Okay, what did you do after that? After they wouldn't give me more money, I mean, I figured I made them a couple million bucks every year. They ought to give me a nice raise, and they wouldn't because it didn't fit their policy. I ended up going to Kimberly Clark as a product manager. They gave me industrial products there. I wasn't in the consumer division, and I got on the wrong side of them. Kimberly Clark has, like Procter & Gamble, they have a bunch of procedures for how you do stuff. They do know consumer marketing and sell billions of dollars of product, and they say, you will do it this way. I get given non-woven fabric to find applications for and I didn't like the process they went through. This is the entrepreneur in me coming out then. Right. You had a little flexibility with the other company. This one wanted to tell you what to do exactly, how to do it more strict, right? Yeah. Yeah, Beth Gooders didn't know what marketing was, so I could do pretty much what I wanted. Kimberly Clark thinks they know, and they do. They're a very successful company. But the process to introduce a new product would take almost three years. I was given two dozen possible applications. One of them was tablecloths. That you could make a tablecloth out of the stuff, and you could wash it. Now, what was it, non-woven fabric? Spun-bonded polypropylene. It feels like fabric, but it's plastic, and you can wash it 50 times. Do we see that stuff on the market today? No. 
tell you why. First off, I wasn't allowed to sell consumer products. I'm in the industrial division. And there's some politics going on between the VP of consumer and the VP of industrial, and they hate each other. So I'm not allowed to take my product into anything related to consumers. So I said, well, I have a consumer application here, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go find another company. So I find a paper company that has all the right machinery to convert, package, and print tablecloths. And I go talk to them, and I say, hey, I'm not allowed to sell this to the grocery stores or anything, but you could. And they're doing it now, but they're a tiny company. So I basically used my ad agency budget, which was huge, and designed the packaging and basically did everything for them. But they had to manufacture it. I had to sell them to meet the politics. So what we did is we created the product. Our lab tests showed that we could wash this thing and dry it in a dryer just when you did it without the heat. So it had passed those kinds of tests. I said, well, I'm going to find out if this thing will sell. And the easiest way to find out is to put it in packages and put it in a grocery store. And now these guys I was working with would have a hard time getting that done. But as Kimberly Clark, I can just hop on a plane. I went down to Jewel Foods in Chicago and talked to them and said, I'd like to do a test and put these floor displays in all your stores. And I said, fine. And your ad budget from Kimberly Clark handled all this? Believe it or not, Kimberly Clark gave me a million dollars a year to spend for marketing. So I used it with my ad agency to develop the packaging. I didn't pay Jewel Foods anything. You know, I created what I needed to do to get the product ready so it would be professional everything going to stores. So we put it in stores, just in like 60 stores. And this stuff sells because we're selling a reasonably large tablecloth for $2.99 retail that you can rewash. That sounds good. What we find out is really interesting. Though people will buy it. When they take it home and wash it, the washing works fine, but the drying is a problem because if there's any heat in the dryer, it melts this stuff, and it turns into a ball of plastic and ruins the dryer. The lab people, being engineers, they do their thing, and they control it to the nth degree. But in real-world homes, it doesn't work like that. About 5% of the people have the dryers ruined, so we find that out, of course, and we have to replace the dryer. <laughs> the product then is dead. It does not work because guess what, guys? In the real world, you can't wash this stuff because here's what happens. And we don't really want to make 50 cents on a tablecloth and have to replace it. And a big company stuff. like that missed the testing, real consumer testing. They were just testing in the lab. You're listening to Michael Sinoff's Hard to Find Seminars. Well, lab people control it to the nth degree. You know how they are. Their dryers in the lab are plus or minus one degree. They're perfect. But in the real world, it doesn't work like that. They got pissed at me, of course, and I ended up leaving Kimberly Clark. But what I thought was cool is I found out that this application isn't going to work, and I found it out in less than a year for not very much money. I didn't spend my million bucks at all. I spent maybe 50 grand of it. And then we had to replace a few dryers. But we found out that it would sell, but we had a technical problem, and the thing died. And I thought that was cool because if I'd gone through their focus groups process and all of that, I would have spent a couple hundred thousand dollars before I was ready to put it in the store. And I found out for a third the money and a third the time, and they didn't like that because I didn't use their process. So at this point, I said, I'm out of there. Basically, they told me I had to leave. And I said, all right, I'm going to get a job to run a company. My uncle was a headhunter for big companies, and he talked to the president of IBM, top-level management for Fortune 500 companies. And he said, well, what's your experience? You don't have qualification to run a business. And me being me, I said, well, I'm not going to let that stand in my way. I'm going to do it anyway. So I sent out 5,000 resumes, something like that, companies all over the country. And I got two offers to run the business. And I take one in Iowa. It's a Frisbee company. It makes advertising specialties where you print advertising and things. And it's a small company doing a couple million a year of that. And I take that one because the guy is in default on his SBA loan, and they're getting ready to shut him down. They said, well, I've got an MBA. I know a lot about this stuff. That sounds like fun. It'll be a challenge. 
So I go out to Iowa. I end up going early because the guy who owns the company is a pilot, and you know, he flies a private plane. Well, he ran his plane out of gas, and it crashed in the same field that Buddy Holly died in. He just ended up in the hospital, and it didn't die. And he claims he checked the gas, but I'm sorry. If I'm going to fly in an airplane, they don't coast to the side of the road like the car. And he ran it out of gas and crashed, so I had to come up here a little sooner than I planned. And because of my background, on my resume, I've worked for some really big companies and got an MBA, top of my class kind of thing. I got the SBA to give us six more months and basically rescued that and then went about helping them make the company do better. And I actually did help. I had a disagreement with the guy who owned it because our deal was he was going to sell. That's the kind of personality he was. He was going to do sales. I was going to handle the marketing and the manufacturing. And he had good people, and they're running the injection molding machines and all. Was this guy actually manufacturing the Frisbees? Yes. We had six injection molding machines that turned little plastic pellets into Frisbees and other plastic products. And we had good people running the machines, and plant manager knew what he was doing, so I could manage that fine because the people had their act together. And this guy, Dalton, owned all the molds? Yeah. And then he spent about a week out selling in the road all year, and the rest of the time in the office hassling me. So anyway, I helped this company a lot, and after a year, we decided to part ways. I had met another guy in Mason City, Iowa, relative to the Frisbees, doing screen printing. You know, I was having him doing stuff for us. Talk about a small company. It's him and his wife, and they have one employee who runs the screen press. And they're making a few souvenir decals. They're made on this prismatic stuff, and they get stuck on the back of campers and things. Made out of a prismatic vinyl material. Yeah, prismatic vinyl, it's metallized, and then it has a pattern in it. What they started calling it was holographic, but it isn't truly holographic. It's a diffraction grating pattern put in the metallized film, which has a pattern in it, and when light hits it, it turns it into rainbows. He wasn't manufacturing it, was he? Not the raw material. No. He was buying the raw material from a source, and he was using it for decals for tourist stops and stuff. Right. The main place he was selling was truck stops. And not very much sales, maybe 150000 a year gross revenue. So I come in, and we decide we're going to start a company. I had also, at this point, started a company making little wooden magnets that I was selling in the promotional products industry, just out of the home. My wife and I were doing it as a part-time thing. And I was selling maybe $50,000 a year of that. And that's how I met this guy. One of the things I had him doing for me was making them. So we got together. We decided we'd start a new company, and I would go out and sell and find markets for this stuff. So that's what I did. I went out into the commercial products industry, into the souvenir business, and I started getting us distributors and people like that. And we started selling more of it because his thing was making it. When it was your job to sell this, what was your strategy to sell a lot of this? You mentioned distributors. Would you rather go to a distributor to handle volume or going to smaller specialty ad companies? Well, the specialty business is separate than souvenirs. Souvenirs, you're selling a product that you make to whoever will buy it. As specialties, it's a custom imprint with the company's name and phone number on it. So for the souvenir business, a typical truck stop would buy $72 worth. So you can't justify a personal sales call for that. So what I did is I went and said, okay, who sells truck stops? And there are three or four distributors who sell truck stops. So I went to see them got our product in their product line, and they call on all the truck stops in the country. So though I'm selling it for less margin, I've got distribution then for truck stops. 
Then I did the same thing for souvenirs. I found there's souvenir distributors who have salespeople running all over the place selling postcards and everything else. The distributor handles multiple products, sometimes hundreds and even thousands. thousands yeah. How do you get a distributor to focus on your product, and do you have any strategy to get them to pay attention or push your product more over other products? Yes. There's a definite strategy because if you just give something to them to sell and don't do anything, then we'll never sell any because they're really not salespeople. They're more order takers, and they'll ask their customers what they want, and they'll just fill their order. So what you have to do is you have to prove to them the stuff sells. And we had numbers and sell-through information from the few customers we already had, and we could say this stuff sells out the weekend sometimes if the truck stuff has good traffic. So we would tell them that and say, go ahead and place some yourself and see. We'll even give them to you free for you to place 10 displays, and you can see what happens. And as soon as the distributor and distributor salespeople see the stuff sells well and makes their customer money, then they're not afraid to recommend it. But they don't want to recommend something that may not work. So they're in an order-taking mode that the customer makes the decision it's not their fault if it doesn't work. If they recommend, they don't want to hurt their relationship. So they don't want to recommend unless they know it'll work. And if you get them enough samples to do tests with, and of course, we have to know what sells first. If our product sucked, it would be no good. So we knew it would sell. So we branched out into other kinds of products for drug stops. We ended up making the little decals to go on keychains. We made bumper stickers and pennants and all kinds of other things. The artwork is a real pain. You have seven or eight colors of screen printing to make a decal that's going to sell for a buck retail, and then you're going to sell $72 of them. So that's how we started. And in the specialty end of it, I said this same material would be good for promotional things. And a guy went out and talked to events like the Albuquerque Hot Air Balloon Festival. And we sold them like $10,000 worth of these stickers for the balloon festival, which was like selling a lot of truck stops. But the basic problem I saw with all this stuff is give a tremendous amount of artwork that you have to do for each dollar in sales. So this company is where I got into the sticker business. You know, the smiley faces and unicorns back in the 1980s. There were about 200 companies in the business already, and I finally noticed. Not exactly quick on the uptake there. But the kids' stickers are everywhere at this point. Where did you first notice that uh, there was a market for kids' stickers? Probably because my kids were getting them. Yeah, I had two little kids at the time. So you realize screen printing is a pain in the ass. You're limited by time and labor. It's just too much, and you wanted something that you could really leverage yourself. Yeah, the screen printing is okay. The process is all right. It's the artwork. It's having to make eight screens, do eight pieces of art to print a decal that you're going to sell 500 of. So I say, well, all right. I see all these stickers out here from hundreds of companies, and they're on paper. And I say, our little decal thing has been selling in souvenirs because it's sparkly and it looks shiny and it's attractive. And it's better than the ones that are like bumper stickers on white vinyl. So stickers are paper because they don't need to survive outside. But I said, maybe this stuff would work on a sticker. Maybe kids would like it. So I said, I'm going to find out. At this point, we've got an artist. My wife and I have come up with ideas for designs to have the artist draw We make a dozen different packages of stickers. And say, okay, we need to put these in the store and see if anybody will buy them. So that's what we do. We get them in the Hallmark stores. That's where stickers are sold, you know, in gift shops. And it turns out they sell. And in fact, they sell very well. How many stores did you test? I think I sold about four or five stores. Did you put them in on consignment? Yes. So you want to test it in the store. That's been consistent in a lot of the things you do. You want to get the product in the store to see if the public will buy it. We're going to know if someone will give you money until they give you money. And you want to get it in the store just for the test. You're not going to try and sell those stores. So consignment is always a good way. You yeah, probably put it in there for free if they'd let you. Exactly. 
So we got enough of those going that the stores would then reorder because they were doing well, which we then were now into a regular we sell you kind of relationship. And we probably got 50, 60 stores. I say, okay, now how do I sell gift stores? There's a lot of Hallmark stores, and I found out there's a thing called a gift wrap, which is a manufacturer's wrap that makes calls on gift and stationery stores. So I get a gift wrapper who go out and sell the stuff for me. And the gift wraps are like the truck shop distributors. They take orders. They don't sell. But using the same technique, we got a couple hundred stores buying the stuff, and it was selling. What do you have to pay a rep? 20% commission. Is that standard in a gift store industry? Yes, 20%. And then they have a territory, and they get 20% on the territory. Even if an order comes in that doesn't have anything to do with them, they still get paid because it's their territory. So what I did at this point is I said, I need to find somebody who knows about how this stuff works and who the gift reps are I should get because there's a million of them. How do I know who's any good? So at this point, I found a guy in Ohio who was representing us, and he was our best guy. He was selling more there than anywhere else. From our 100,000 a year we started, at, we're about a half a million a year now selling stickers. Do you have reps already? Yeah. I had about half a dozen reps. And reps are organizations. A rep organization has a bunch of salespeople in it, like Northern California is a territory, Southern California is a territory, Washington, Oregon is a territory. All the New England states are one territory. I have a few reps. We're getting going. And the guy in Ohio is just kicking butt. One of the reasons is he owns five Hallmark stores, but he also is a rep for Ohio. So he is a rep who has more on the ball than your average rep because he owns stores. I made a deal with him. I said, tell you what, you know this business. You've been in it 30 years. You be my VP of sales for the gift industry, and you sign up the reps. You know all these guys all over the country. You know who's good and who isn't. And he, in about a week, signed up the entire country distribution just by calling up his buds. For your stickers. For our stickers. Okay, what was your deal? What were you going to pay him? I paid him a 5% override. On all the gross? And it took him about a week, and we had 300 reps. That was about 20 organizations. Like the New England one has 15 or 20 people selling, but that's one rep firm, but 20 people. So we had almost 300 people selling for us. And he jumped on it because he knew in his stores these things were selling. Yeah. So he could get behind it. We've made a whole bunch more product. I had enough product now to fill four-foot section, hundreds of designs. Were you making them on rolls? We are making them on rolls, and they're prismatic of all different sizes, and they would sell anywhere from a dime to 50 cents, depending on the size of the sticker. We had displays that would hold the rolls that we'd provide with them. And we designed metal fixturing that bolted into Hallmark's fixturing. It looked like it was made by Hallmark. There was two-foot, four-foot sections that would bolt right into Hallmark's, so it was really cool. Who was handling all the manufacturing? My partner, Brian, was handling manufacturing, and Arrow was selling I got Errol excited enough about that thing. I said, well, I'm going to give you a piece of this company if you'll move to Mason City, Iowa, and do this full time. So I got him to do that. That was my best sales job I ever did, getting somebody to move to Mason City, Iowa. He's the VP of sales for the business now. And we're selling a million bucks a year of stickers to gift shops. How many gift shops were you in? At this point, maybe a thousand. What did your company look like at that time? Oh, maybe 20, 30 people. 20 or 30 people? Were you leveraged? Were you borrowing money? Yeah, I went to the bank and did a business plan. And it was amazing. I do my typical 50, 60-page business plan like you do in business school as a case study. And it looked really good. And they asked me lots of questions. And I got asset-based financing, you know, receivables, inventory. And of all the questions they asked me, they never asked me how I was going to get these sales because I was saying, we're going to do a million this year, we're going to do three million next year, and five million a year after that. And of all the questions they had, they never asked me how I expected to grow at 300% a year. Never asked that. I did it anyway, but I thought it was pretty interesting. Bankers being bankers, they want to know about this ratio or that ratio, but the assumptions behind them, they never ask. No, they would just want to know that they could take your assets and sell them and get their money back. 
Right. So on the asset-based financing, how much would they lend you based on the value of the assets? I get 80% of receivables, 50% of inventory, and we lease the equipment. You would get 80% of accounts receivables, 50% of inventory? Yeah. How did that lease thing work? My partner did that. He just went to leasing companies. We didn't have to put any money down. 50% on inventory is a pretty good loan. Well, the 80% on receivables is a great thing because take the sticker that's selling in the store for a dollar, we could make for a dime. At a $1 receivable, we can borrow 80 cents on that. So with the cost of a dime, we're in hog heaven here in cash flow. So what happens next is now we see the stuff is selling in gift stores. I want to be in big chains now. And we're in northern Iowa, so I can hop in my car and drive to Target, which is in Minneapolis. And I figure that we're now making stickers in packages, not just rolls, because in a mass market, you have to have a UPC code and shrink wrap packages. So we get all that done. And then we started out selling them in the Hallmark stores, but then went to Target. And I figure I'm going to sell Target at 75 cents each, and they're going to retail at a buck and a half. Now, was this the first time you ever called on a large company like this? Yes. I'd never made a sales call on a retail chain in my life. Were you nervous? Yeah. How did you set the appointment up? Well, I just called them and asked who buys stickers there and if I could come see them. And this is in the 80s, and these chains weren't as picky about that. They gave me an appointment. I told them the product line we had was selling great in gift stores, and I thought that it might do well in their stores, too, because they were also carrying stickers. So I had a rationale behind it. You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hardtofindseminars.com. I think we're going to sell them to them at 75 cents, and I end up going up there and back like three, four times before we get them to buy them, and then they buy them at 37 and a half cents, half what I thought I was going to sell them for, you know, the real world. Anyway, that was okay because we can make them for that, so we're still okay. But our first order from Target was hilarious because they made a screw-up on the order, and they said they were going to buy $5,000 worth for a test, and the order came with an extra zero or $50,000 worth. And this isn't an inventory item. It's what they call a flow-through right to the store. Do stores generally do a flow-through direct to the store just to test products out? For testing, yes. So they had you shipped directly to multiple stores? I think we're shipped to the Minneapolis warehouse, and then it goes from there to the stores. But it's called a flow-through. It's no warehouse lot. And what happens then, the buyer figured this out and called to cancel. So you got the PO, and it was for $50,000. Right. We have the piece of paper that says $50,000 and the appropriate amount of stickers. And the buyer figures out they're going to mistake. He calls to cancel. I tell him, sorry, it's already shipped, which it hadn't. We got it out right away. And the net effect of this, now, since it wasn't an inventory item, now the stores have 10 times what they had planned on them having. So it's going to take more space. So they have to shuffle things around at store level to make place for all the stuff. Did they do all the display or did any reps go in and help set that up? No, they did it. Later on, we did planograms for them up in their planogram area, but that was later. At the beginning, I didn't know what a planogram was. What is a planogram for anyone that doesn't know? Target or Walmart or anybody, every inch of that store is planned. And in the case of Target at the time, they had three sizes of stores, A, B, and C. And in an A store, the stickers had four feet, and this peg had this one on it, and this peg had that. It basically is a blueprint for what goes where. You may walk in the store and think that this is sort of like random products everywhere, but everything is blueprinted out as to where it goes, every single hook. And bigger stores have more hooks than littler stores, they have more space. So what we end up doing, though, is they end up having to shuffle things around because they end up with more product than they have room for, and it's at store level, it can't sit in the warehouse. What happened then, our product sold out right away. And we wouldn't have found this out as quickly because we ended up with three or four times the space we should have had, made more of an impact than people walking by, the kids bought the stickers, and Target reordered. And that was the start of the big deal because our product sold so well, they put it in 
in the newspaper at two for a buck on sale and used it as a traffic builder for the store. And gosh, it wasn't but a few months that we were in every one of the Target stores. Wow. How many Targets were there at that time? A couple hundred, I think. So when a mass merchandiser like Target finds something that works and works really well, you can expect they're going to roll out to all their stores. Mm-hmm. Now, back then, maybe today it's different, but did they screen you whether you had the ability to produce or the capacity to supply all their stores? Was that a big concern with Target back then? Yeah, and I have a strategy for that. I had to use for Walmart, too. How did they question you about your capacity for production? They want to know that you have the financial capability to deliver the product because the absolute worst thing for a retail store is to have empty space. Even something that sells slowly is better than nothing there. They give you a big order and allocate the space and all the stores for it, and you can't financially deliver, and there's no product. They have empty space, and that's the worst thing that can happen. So they want to see your financial statements. They want to see all that kind of thing. Nowadays, it's much, much worse. But back then, they had a million forms to fill out, and what I did is I filled out everything except the financial statements, and then the buyers said, well, we didn't have the financial statements. Oh, I'll get it to you right away. Don't worry about it. And I never sent it because if I did, we wouldn't get an order, and it slipped through the cracks. Same thing happened at Walmart. When I first got in Walmart, I sent them all the paperwork except the financial statement because if they saw that, there's no way. That's hilarious. That's great. It slipped through the cracks both times. I gave them everything else, and bottom line is the product had sold well, and we have been able to ship everything quickly so far. The buyer is sort of covering his butt there. We didn't do it, but the product was selling, and the buyer is incentivized, and his job depends on getting the most profit per foot he can. And when we have something that's giving him more profit per foot than the others, he's inclined to let it slide. So they were asking for financials after your test went through, not before they tried your product, correct? That's right. We were probably in 30 stores before they asked for that. It wasn't up front. Walmart was up front. Target was not. Describe what it was like once you saw success in Target and then that order came in for all of their stores. Do you remember that day? Yeah, it's called Scramble. We made product and put it in inventory and shipped out inventory, but when we get a big order like that, I don't know, it was $100,000 or something, that was more than we had inventory, so we had to have our people come in over the weekend and rush it out. We wanted to make sure we made every ship date, and what happens once you're approved and they order, they want you to ship that within a week. A week? Yeah, so we have five days to get that out, so we got it out. We're a small entrepreneurial company. We open up a second ship, and we run our weekend, and we get it done. And how long did you have to wait for your money? Terms are net 30. We got paid in like 45 days, so it was never a problem with Target. And they paid on time? Yeah, within a few weeks, yes. We had more problem collecting from Hallmark stores and gift stores. They were hard. If I have a rule of thumb on that, the smaller the order, the harder it is to collect. $200 order from a Hallmark store in Alabama, you know, that thing would go six months. How did you handle that? Did you have in-house collection, or did you farm it out? In-house, and at the high point of our company, we had 20 people doing that, because at the high point, we had 300 employees. What our rule of thumb was is we'll ship anybody the first order. You know, we're not going to do credit checks and all that. It's too much trouble. And the independent gift stores, the first order is a couple hundred dollars. It's not a huge amount of money. And then the rule was if they hadn't paid for that one when they ordered again, we wouldn't ship the second order. So that was our method. And back then, we had a big, huge computer system that pretty much was supposed to do everything under the sun and work for receivables, and that's about it. And that's about all we could get it to do was tell us that, hey, these people haven't paid for the last order. Don't ship this one. 
Tell me what the business is looking like. You're in all 200 of the Target stores? At this point, we're also in probably 2,000 independent gift shops. In 2,000 independent gift shops. Any other mass merchandisers with the stickers? Yeah. At this point, we're doing about 3 or 4 million sales, and we were in probably the top 20 mass merchandisers. Everybody but Kmart. And tell me what happens when you have a big success with a mass merchandiser like Target. Why don't you describe how you leverage that to get into the other mass merchandisers? Or did your phone start ringing because of IRI data, did the mass merchandisers know what's hot and they start contacting you? How did you get in all the other ones? Through the reps. Our independent reps pretty much suck as salespeople, but you got 300 of them. I was putting full-page ads in all the gift industry magazines, and there were like four of them, and I have a full-page ad in every one every month talking about how well these things were selling. At the same time, we're getting into Target. The way the gift stores expanded was we did enough promotion that the store owner would ask the rep, do you carry this line? I want to buy this. Now, reps aren't any good at selling, but they're good at taking orders. And if you get thousands of stores asking the reps for this, and then the rep that carries that line can write the order, after this happens 10 or 20 times, the rep finally dawns on him that maybe he should mention it. And before long, now they're mentioning it on every sales call. And lo and behold, at the high point, we have 10,000 independent gift store customers. And we're actually all over. We're in the U.S., Canada, and Europe at that point. But with the mass merchants, these gift industry people, a lot of them had mass merchant divisions, a couple people who specialize in the mass merchants. And so they would go call on Dayton Hudson, and they'd call on Credit and Kmart. We were in Safeway and Jewel Foods. So we were in grocery stores, we were in drug stores, we were in mass merchants. And if you looked at the report of the top 100 mass marketers, whether it's grocery, drug, or anything all on one list, we were in 40 of the top 45. And how much business were you doing at the peak? At the peak, a little over a million dollars a month. And that was back in what year? 84. So the only one we couldn't get in was Kmart. We had a competitor in Kmart who was doing the prismatic stickers, and he copied us. And there's another piece to this, which is the manufacturing side. The normal way you would make these things is you would print them on a rotary press, and the dies are expensive. You know, you get a couple thousand dollars of dies, plates are expensive, and then you have to run a bunch of them. So you have about a $10,000 cost per design. And the guy we were competing with was making them on a web press like that. We were screen printing them on sheets. And the way we made rolls of stickers is we screen printed them on sheets, and then we die cut them, and then we sticky taped them together. This sounds insane, but you have this 28 by 40 inch sheet of all these stickers on there, die cut into rolls that are perforated between each sticker, and then we'd lay them upside down and we'd put adhesive tape between each segment, and then we'd roll that up on a roll manually, which sounds insane. And we would screen print them on eight colors, would be eight screens. We'd run it through the press eight times, four times to die cut it. It's going through the press ten times, where our competitor is going through once, because the, all the plates are printing and the dies are cutting all in line. Who was your competitor? Well, we had a lot of them, but this one was called Starbright. He was a little company. He didn't manufacture anything. But we were doing something. People, if they knew what we were doing, would think we were nuts. You're absolutely crazy. You're taking ten steps where I can do it in one step. But because we were using vinyl and not polyester, and this is one of our big secrets, we could do a 28 by 40 inch thermal die on a sheet. We used an old letterpress machine. And we put it in there, and we die cut it with a thermal die, which cuts by heat. And that would melt the vinyl into the stickers, and we put it in a rule die cutter that would cut through the backing material. What that let us do is where the other people had a setup cost of ten grand per design, we had a setup cost of $25. Because I could make a thermal die for about 150 bucks, It would do about 30 designs, and we taped them together with the tape. So we didn't have hardly any cost. And what we did is I had a bunch of test stores. And at one point, we had 900 test stores, but we started with maybe 
350, and why one lady whose job it was to contact the test stores. The test stores got their stickers at half price, and in exchange for that, they would talk to us every week and tell us which designs have been selling so we can replace them, and we never have an out-of-stock so that our numbers are meaningful. So we never had a failure on a new product because I'd make enough for the test stores of anything new, put it out in the stores, see if it's sold. If it didn't sell, it's discontinued. If it does sell, we roll it out. Like if you tested 10 designs, how many ended up making the cut? 60%. And so your other company didn't have the luxury of doing that because his cost was so much on the setup. We had another competitor who we went to the very first gift show. He had eight designs or something of the prismatic ones, and we had our different process, and we had like four designs or something. And the next show, he shows up and he comes over to talk to us, all proud that he has 12 designs now, and he looks at our booth, and we have 200 of them. And what he thinks is, holy cow, you guys got $2 million of financing just to do the upfront cost to make all those stickers. I'm out of this business, is his conclusion. And it didn't cost us $2 million. It cost us $2,000. So our process let us test stuff and not worry about if it's going to work or not because we never have a failure if we only make enough for the test and roll out what works. So that was a really critical way we were able to expand into thousands of items. That's great. You had an advantage in manufacturing, and you tested meticulously. Oh, yeah. And then the other thing we did on the gift side that was really huge, again, not inventing anything, there were six or eight of our biggest competitors who had sticker clubs, and a sticker club was the kids come and get their sticker each month kind of thing. At this point, stickers are a hot craze, and these other companies have about twenty or 30,000 kids in their clubs. And from talking to stores again, and actually my reps talking to stores and my VP of sales, we find out that the stores don't like these clubs because what they view them as is the manufacturer trying to go around the retailer and sell the kids direct. Now, that's not the truth, but that's the perceived image in the store owner's mind. So what we did is I said, I'm going to do a sticker club, too, and I'm going to do it different. Stores don't like these things because they feel that the manufacturer's trying to undercut them. So I'm going to set my up as a promotion for the store. And our sticker clubs had the store's name on them. Our company was called Decal Specialties, so it would be like the Ross Hallmark Sticker Club. And we had a huge poster for the window. We had point-of-sale displays. We had a limited edition sticker of the month. We had a newsletter. And we had membership cards for the kids. Now, what the store did is they would sell a membership card for a buck. And that entitled a kid to come in every month to get their free limited edition sticker of the month and get their card punched. The store paid a nickel for the stickers. So by selling the membership card for a buck, their cost is 60 cents. The promotion doesn't cost them anything. Now, they do have to buy the window poster and the displays, their cardboard. Some of the best stores had over 1,000 kids in their club. So what that meant is, number one, this club got massive reception because it was a traffic-building promotion for the store under the store's name. So the stores loved it, not hated it. They would have lines of kids outside the stores when the sticker came in. And the kids dragged their moms to the Hallmark store, and guess what mom does while the kids wait in line? She buys stuff. And they come to the Hallmark store more often than normal. On average, the Hallmark stores in a 12-month period did 20% more business because of the promotion. So a store doing a million then did 1.2 million because they had the sticker club. It cost them nothing. So everybody wanted a sticker club. We had shoe stores who wanted sticker clubs, and we had to allocate them, no more than two in any mall, and we wanted to make sure there weren't too many too close together. But we had about 1,200 of them, I think, and we were selling as many as 900,000 limited edition stickers every month. Our biggest seller was always our limited edition sticker because it was dated and everything.
I at one point figured it out. The amount of extra sales that each store got times the number of stores came out to be in the area of $150 million of extra business for the stores that they got for free. So one of the requirements, though, they couldn't have the six club if they didn't have a four-foot section of our stop. So we had Hallmark stores with four- and eight-foot sections. At this point, we have stickers on rolls, stickers on sheets, sticker collecting books, little notebooks, all kinds of stuff, enough to fill 12 feet of space in a store. And back in the Target and those kind of stores, we had two-foot sections probably. And was all your stuff prismatic, or now you were doing all different stuff? No, we were doing other things, too. We were doing holograms. We were doing pearlescence. We were doing other things, but not paper. All our stuff was exotic-looking. There was nothing plain. So it was selling really, really well. And at the point we're doing a million or a million and a quarter every month, we're like 110% leveraged. My partner and I had a thing going. I used to say I could sell more than he could make, and he'd say I could make more than I could sell. And what this led to is a frenzy. We end up with four buildings, 70 acres of land, 300,000-foot factory with these $150,000 screen presses. We're at this point set up to do $50 million because he's doing his thing buying equipment, and I'm doing my thing selling stuff. And we're getting things like KB Toys. We got a million-dollar order from them for the name stickers, or the kids' names on the stickers. And they liked them so much, they wanted us to make racks that would hold twice as much in our normal rack, and then they wanted them for all 900 stores. Did y'all fill that order? Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, my partner at this point had started making the wire racks. He'd set up an area to do that, so we were doing our own. And things were going nuts. Our one competitor in Kmart had just a few designs, and we couldn't get in that chain. Back then, I think Kmart was probably crooked because the guy in the automobile stereo department was buying the stickers, and everybody else, it was the stationary department, and we couldn't get in. So what I ended up doing is talking to our competitor, and I said, okay, guys, you guys have a few designs. You got Kmart. I have an idea. We have a lot more designs. Our stuff is better than yours. How about we sell it to you, and you put it in your package and put it in Kmart? And we give them a price where we still make double our cost, and they can still do fine. It costs them just a tab more than they're paying to have somebody make it for them now. So they test it, and what ends up happening is our stuff does sell better, so they end up turning their old product line into our stuff. So now I'm in Kmart, but in their package. How cool is that? That's great. So what happened then at the high point of this, visualize a Target store or Kmart store where they have a four-foot section and an eight-foot section of all stickers, and they're all in little packages and on hooks, and there's hundreds of hooks. They're all over the place. And the mass merchants back in the 80s, their tracking systems were not that good. They did not want to assign an SKU for each one, because that's 200 or 400 SKUs just for stickers. That's not. So they didn't do that. What happened then is they would order an assortment from anybody who would sell to them, and then it'd sell out, and they ordered more. But at some point, the kids got more picky, and they'd only want to buy the good stuff. The stores still ordered the same assortment, and then the bad stuff stays there. The good stuff sells. They order more. The good stuff sells, the bad stuff stays there. They're still ordering the bad stuff. After a few cycles of this, you have a display of bad stuff, and nobody buys anything. So what happens is our sales go from over a million a month to a quarter million a month in 30 days. And almost all the chains had the same thing happen at the same time. And how long of a period did this take to get to that point? Several years. At the beginning, the kids would buy anything. You had stickers, they buy them. It doesn't matter. Everything sells. But at the point where you've got hundreds of companies making them and thousands of designs and the kids have collection books, now they're getting more discriminating. After a few years, they're pickier. And that's when this happened. And the only chain that had their act together was Target. And Target tracked each group of designs. There may be three designs on a hook. And they tracked that. They're given an SKU. And they tracked it. And though our sales to other mass merchants went to zero, Target sales never changed. They went up a little. Target bought what sold only. How obvious is that? 
but the executing of that at store level back in the 80s wasn't so simple, but Target was smart enough to do it, so our sales to Target never stopped. But the other chains did, and when we went from a million in sales to two or 300,000 in sales, basically we ended up bankrupt in a few months. Asset-based financing works great as you're growing. When you're going the other way, it's basically like leverage. Leverage going up is great. Leverage going down will kill you. And we had no financial staying power whatsoever. We thought we were going to the moon. You know, we were going to be $50 million next year instead of $15 million this year. And then it turns out we end up out of business because of that. The guy I had for a CFO was really just our accountant. He wasn't a real CFO. He knew more than I did at the time. And what I tell people now is that you can go get your MBA and you'll learn some useful things. I didn't learn a lot growing. Going from nothing to 12 to 15 million in five years, I didn't learn a lot doing that because everything I did worked. And my partner and I pretty much thought we could never fail. The going bankrupt part, I learned a lot. How long did that process take? A year and a half. A year and a half. That must have been well, stressful. We, we stuck around. We could have just said, okay, we're bankrupt. We're out of here. We're personally bankrupt. Our business is bankrupt. Walk away and start doing something else. Were you personally on the hook for this? Of course. So you had a home and were you married with kids? Yeah, I had a home and stocks and all kinds of stuff. And yes, personally on the hook and personally bankrupt and business bankrupt because all that has to happen is the bank comes and says, okay, you personally guaranteed $6 million, so we want our money. Okay. Have a couple hundred grand, but not 600000 So what happened? Did you lose your home and everything? Yeah, I went through personal bankruptcy and business bankruptcy. We hung around, my partner and I, for a year and a half on small salaries and helped the bank get their money back. And we liquidated the company, and the bank did get most of their money back. Apparently, most people don't do that. I mean, we didn't know. I'd never been bankrupt before. It seemed like the right thing to do. But the bank was impressed enough of that that when they had the auction for our equipment, sold it all at auction, they loaned my partner the money to go buy it at the auction. Pretty cool. Did he buy it for a good deal? Oh, yeah, 10 cents on the dollar, because it's equipment auction. Banks don't normally do that. If you go bankrupt, the bank isn't going to come near you with a 10-foot pole. But because of the way we handled the whole thing, they loaned my partner the money to start over with another company. At this point, I'd had enough of manufacturing. I said, you know, I'm going to move to Colorado, and I'm going to do marketing. I'm not going to do manufacturing. So my former partner starts a screen printing company again, and he does contract screen printing for people, not getting back into retail stores, which I wasn't interested in to see if I could make something for a dollar and sell it for a dollar fifteen. You know, that's where I was coming from. At this point, you knew what a pain in the ass it was was to run a company like that, something that had to be manufactured. I was stuck as president of this thing because I had an MBA, okay? My partner graduated from college as a musician. So I, by default, ended up president pretty much clueless on how to handle all these people, and I didn't want to do that again. So I came out to Colorado. We did a couple good things. One thing is we had a promotion on the back of our stickers where we said, send a dollar for shipping and handling, we'll send you some free stickers. So we have kids sending in lots of dollars for the stickers. I don't know, $10,000 a month maybe in dollar bill. So we started a little consumer mail order company out of this that my wife runs. And it's so cool because this is a company that can get a 0% response on a mailing and make money. If kids are sending us a buck, we send out their free stickers and an order form to buy more. And the cost to send the stickers and the stamp and the whole thing to mail it costs 80 cents. So we make 20 cents if we never get an order, which is so cool. We build a consumer mail order company this way. Now, who were you mailing to? Kids who buy the sticker in a store. Back of the package, it says, send a dollar and we'll send you a free sticker. Oh, now, this was even when you were in all the mass merchandisers. Yes. Oh, so you 
had that on the back of all your packets. That was happening the whole time, right? Yeah. That was income part for the company, right? Yes. But after the company went bankrupt, things were still coming in? Yeah, the consumer thing was still there, and the bankruptcy court wasn't interested in it. Okay, so you still had dollars coming in which you wanted to leverage. Not very many, though, because remember when the store stopped buying, it had to dwindle down in a hurry. The important thing we did is we had a lot of our thousands of pieces of art. And before filing the bankruptcy, our lawyers suggested we sell the artwork to our wives. I sold it to my wife. He sold it to his wife. But both of them were non-exclusive. We both have the non-exclusive right to the artwork. And then the bankruptcy court looked at that. It was sold for 5000 bucks. This is like $2 million of artwork. The bankruptcy court said, okay, five grand, that's fine. Who else would I ever want this anyway? Non-exclusive right will approve that transaction. I took my non-exclusive right to the artwork, came out here to Colorado, and went back into the gift industry and found a company that wasn't making stickers. And I said, guess what, guys? You want to be in the sticker business? I can put you in it overnight. I have all the art, and I know how to get this stuff made. So I sold it to them for 100000 bucks, and that's how I started my next company. And I helped them get in the sticker business. So now I put this company in the sticker business. They're doing great, making a million or two. How long did it take them to get going? Three or four months. I had all the art. I just had to set them up with the manufacturing, which we outsourced this time, and then got them in the business, and they started designing some of their own and everything, which was fine. Did they pay you 100 grand all up front? No. I got about half of it up front, another half later, but I also made each package of stickers. You know, we're now selling Hallmark-sized packages. It cost me 20 cents to make. I sold them to them for a quarter, so I made the markup on the product itself along with my 100000 and that went on for several years. What I did then, came out here to Colorado, and the company I started out here never had more than 10 people. Instead of 300. I said, I'm going to do marketing this time. I'm not going to own the factory. One thing I've done is I've noticed this raw material we were using had gotten cheaper. A couple of companies were now metallizing paper, and those that were doing it on film, instead of three mil thick film, they now had half mil film, which is one sixth as much. So I said, okay, I have an idea. And my idea is this prismatic, holographic look sold well to kids. They loved it. The stuff is now cheaper. So I say, okay, what else do kids buy that would appeal to the same age group that's bigger? And so I come up with school supplies. You have portfolios, three-ring binders, spiral notebooks, pens, pencils, rulers. So I found people who make those things, the spiral notebook companies and the companies that make two-pocket folders, and I had them make their stuff out of our materials with my artwork on it. And back I go to Target and Walmart. Well, how were you going to make money on that deal? Did you just sell on the material? No, no. I provided the material to the factory. I said, you guys make me a spiral notebook. I would have the material made and ship them the cover. And they make the lined paper pages and they put the spiral in. On a ruler, I would send them the material attached to vinyl and cut it and print it. And on a two-pocket folder, I had the material shipped direct to the factory that makes the folders. They'd laminate it to the cardboard. And then I'd do the artwork. And the product would be my product, and then I would sell it to the store. So I'm having it made for me, and then I sell it to the store. Now we're dealing only with mass market because that's where school supplies are sold. Right, you went back to Target. Target, Walmart. And actually with Target... Target is high-end compared to Walmart, fad and fashion, and they spend $100,000, $150,000 a year on research of colors. So I got the buyer at Target to help me design my product line. They shared with me their color research. Here are the coming colors for this year, and I was going to do a product line with animals on it, and it was the point where I'd send drawings up to the buyer, and he'd say, yay, nay, I don't think this would go, but this one should work well. The buyer knows more about what his customers are buying than I do, and we developed the product lines together, both the colors of the metallic stuff, that was just colored in different sparkly patterns and the stuff that had designs printed, the buyer helped me do it. The net result of that is he had a buy-in on it, so there was no way it wasn't going to get in the stores for at least a test because the buyer helped create it. You got them involved. Yeah. And I bet buyers are open to working with manufacturers and distributors, wouldn't you think? 
Well, Target, yes, Walmart, no. Target is a patent fashion leader. They do the color research and all that. Walmart's a follower. If you prove something will sell, we'll buy some. But we don't want to pioneer anything. Or Target will. So start with Target, then go to Walmart once you have a proven success. But with Target, the products sold so well, I had four feet again, whole product line. The mass market people don't want to buy an item. They want to buy a product line. You better have a four-foot section of product, not just a thing. The only way you'll sell a thing is if you have the Star Wars license and you put Star Wars stuff by this cash register. Well, I've heard this before in some of my interviews about how to get into Walmart. Don't go to Walmart or any of these mass merchandisers with just one product. They won't buy an item. They want a product line. I guess an exception to that is if you have an item that sells for $75 and it's something unique, iPod, for example. Okay, iPod doesn't have to have 10 different iPods. They can sell one. But for the normal small business, you're not Apple Computer. So Target told us, instead of Walmart, that one of their corporate edicts is to reduce the number of vendors. They want less vendor IDs in their computer system because they cost them money. If they can get one vendor to fill four feet instead of three vendors to fill four feet, if the sell-through is the same and the profits are the same, they'll pick the one because they make more money when they consider all the other costs. What happened to Target is they gave us two feet, it sold well. They gave us four feet, it sold well. They put us on an end cap because we then were the best thing in the department. And we got an award as the best new vendor for the year, stationery and school supplies. We went to Minneapolis and got my award. We created the most profit per foot per week in the department. Did Walmart pick up on it? Yeah. Once we were successing Target, then we took it to Walmart. And we said, okay, Target has us on an end cap. Stuff's blowing out. You guys want to test it? So Walmart took it and obviously bought a lot more than Target because they have more stores, and they did well with it, too. Let's talk about your experience with Walmart and what that was like. When you approached Walmart, did you have to go down to Bentonville to present it? Yeah. Did you do it personally or one of your reps? Did you have reps at this time again? We got reps, but at least then, and probably now, Walmart doesn't want to deal with reps. They want to deal with principals who can make a decision. Okay, so you had to go down to Bentonville. Yes, but the way this happened is, this is a funny story. I was looking for an employee, the sales manager in this new company, who had experience selling big chains. I put ads out, and I get this guy who comes into our office, and here we're in Boulder, Colorado now. And he comes in wearing a cowboy hat and boots, and he's a Texan. He looks like he's got up a horse, and he's like 65. And his jacket has fringe on it. And he's a typical sales guy. I can sell anything to anybody. I have connections everywhere. And almost just threw him out. And you're not going to fit. But he was convincing, and he was a good sales guy. So it's okay, Jack. We'll give you a chance. I mean, because part of his line was, oh, I have connections to Walmart. I know someone on the board. He said, all right, sure you do. But he did. I took him on as sales. We hadn't been able to get into Walmart. They wouldn't give us an appointment. And Jack gets on the phone, calls his guy he knows down there, and the buyer calls us back and says, when would you like to come? Whoa. So on a plane we go. And Did you go with him? Jack, yes. He and I went down there together and basically closed the deal. And they gave us a test. And once we get a test, we're good because the stuff sells. How would you recommend someone prepare when they're getting ready to pitch Walmart? Did you have all your stats together? What advice would oh, you yeah. give? Yes. First, you need to understand Walmart. Just go to their website and look at the vendor part, and they tell you right there what their requirements are and what you have to do to do business with them. You can't get away with not giving you your financials anymore. They've buttoned down that stuff. And you basically need to understand where they're coming from and their business philosophy and all that, and you really need to study all that. But the basic thing I think you need to do is you have to have something that's going to make them more money per square foot than what's there now. And what people need to realize 
saying that your product is going to sell and you're going to make them a nice profit on this thing isn't good enough by itself. There's only so much space in the store. If they're going to take your product, something else has got to go away. Were you able to get stats on what was in Walmart currently, the existing school supplies line? Oh, yeah. We go into the store and we look what's there and we try to get our best feel for how fast it's selling. We check the price points. Oh, one other thing I didn't tell you about this school supply line. You know, everybody says Walmart's cheap, right? The normal two-pocket folder was selling either for $0.39 cents retail, just a yellow paper one called Peachy, or there were some fancy ones from the sticker companies, Lisa Frank and so on, that sold for $0.79 cents retail. Ours sold for 2 bucks. We were three times the retail price. On the surface of things, that sounds insane. You need to go in with a lower price so they buy yours. Well, if you have a commodity, that's true. If you're selling apples to apples, they're going to buy the cheapest apple that's the same quality. But ours was not the same. And our pitch was, guess what, guys? You will sell the same number of units of our portfolio as you will with competitors. On the competitor's 79-cent portfolio, you make 30 cents. On our $2 one, you make a dollar five. This is the end of Section 1. Please continue to Section 2.